Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. He is a writer who has written both fiction and non-fiction books. He's also a ghostwriter, a journalist, a translator. His first published work, Eating Mammals, won the Paris Review's Discovery Plimpton Prize in 2002 and his latest book, To the Grave, the second in the D.S. Joe Romano crime thriller series was released on May 26th. Please welcome to the show, John Barlow. Hello, good to be here. Very good to have you here, John. I'm pleased to welcome you onto British Murders. It's always lovely to have a crime thriller writer in the midst here. Good, good. Before we get started, I do have a little bit of an icebreaker question that, as a writer, I think it'd be interesting to hear what your answer to this is. Okay. So we have a time machine. Okay. It can be a DeLorean, it can be whatever you fancy. If you could go back in time and have one book attributed to you, which book would you choose and why? So an example would be going back in time and changing history so that you wrote The Shining, for example, instead of Stephen King. Yeah, I don't suppose I can have going back to Cervantes and writing Don Quixote, can I? Is that going too far? You can go back as far as you like, as long as you provide me with a reason. Well, I think that book's never been bettered. You know, it was one of the first great modern novels, and I don't think anything's been written that's better in its uh, its scope, its depth, its humour, its sophistication. If I could have just written one sentence from that, I would be happy, you know. When was it actually written? So we're talking the Spanish Golden Age, so uh, 16th century, I guess. Mm. How hard would that be? Because I've never read it. How hard would that be to read in this day and age? Would it need modern translation do you think yeah that I mean the translations coming out periodically and they they all try and modernize the text a bit i've tried a bit in the spanish and it is quite hard but yeah the the, the modern translations tend to do a pretty good job so it's easy enough to read cuz you live in spain at the moment is that right that's right yeah i've been here since 2004 but you grew up in gomasal west yorkshire which is sort of halfway between my hometown of Huddersfield and my current living city of Leeds. What was it like growing up in Gummersall? Oh, it was great. It's um, very much a traditional village. Um, I mean, it dates right back to the Doomsday Book, and it's a, 
a village which grew in the pre-industrial revolution. So it was a handloom weavers village. It then lost out a bit to the Cleckheaton, which is next door, which was the industrial mill town, which grew up in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. But it was a, a very, very nice place to grow up. You know, it's um, a few pubs, uh, a butcher's, fish and chip shops, the, the whole thing. It was very nice. Typical northern village by the sounds. Yeah, completely typical. <laughs> Where'd you go to school? I went to school in Gummersall and then I went to secondary school in Cleckheaton, Wycliffe Mount School, which is uh, actually the, one of the settings of the first book in the Joe Romano series. So I always tend to write about the north of England. Uh, and in that case, I actually wrote about Cleckheaton. I used to spend a lot of time in the library when I was uh, in the sixth form. So I, I set part of the novel in the library, which was quite fun because it hadn't changed at all when I went back to have a look. How did you find school then? Was it something you enjoyed? No, I didn't enjoy school much until I got into the sixth form. Then I started to enjoy it a bit more. I had some really great teachers. We were very lucky, English teachers, history teachers. And uh, I really quite enjoyed that's when I started to get interested in reading and ideas and knowledge in general. I was in the sixth form there and, and in the library down the road as well. What were your career aspirations back then as a, a school youth? When I, was a, when I was a young boy, I wanted to be a chef. And then I had a period of wanting to be a lawyer. And then, in fact, I did not, none of that. And I, I left school after A-levels and became a musician for a few years. So um, I didn't realise any of my ambitions at all. It says on your website you became a cabaret musician. Yeah, I was, I was in Working Men's Club Cabaret and, well, all, anyway, it didn't pay me to play. I was gigging for a few years. Then I decided to go to university after that. So it was quite a rude awakening because I remember I went to Cambridge to, to study English and I was in quite a formal, old-fashioned college and I'd been there, just been there a term and I came back at Christmas, and to earn a bit more money, I did some deputising for keyboard players in working men's clubs. So one week I was in my gowns eating dinner at Cambridge College Halls, and the next week I was in a working men's club in Barnsley, and the fight broke out at the middle of the uh, the concert hall, and I thought, good grief, what, what kind of life have I got? <laughs> How does someone from a stereotypical Yorkshire village end up at Cambridge? I don't know, really. I just fancied going. I think a friend of mine had gone who was a couple of years older than me. And uh, I'd been down and I think I visited somebody at Oxford as well. And I just I just fancied it. So I, I just applied and uh, I got in. So I didn't really think too much about it. I just fancied going somewhere that I didn't know anything about. Something wasn't familiar to me, you know. How hard was it to get into Cambridge? I've got this vision of it being quite a elitist, difficult institution to get into. I think it's almost impossible now. I mean, I was talking to a friend and she, she studied with me and she was saying neither of us would have got in these days because at the moment it's so competitive. Uh, you've got to have ridiculous, ridiculous grades, but it was a little bit easier back then. We're talking, what, 25, 30 years ago? No, more, 30, 30 odd years ago. So it was, it was a bit easier, I think, back then. Was it a bit of a culture shock for you? It was a bit of a culture shock, yes. People who I met there who'd gone to public schools, real posh public schools, they were all disappointed because it felt to them just like being at school. It was seamless, the change, whereas for me it was a real culture shock. And, you know, a few others I had a friend who was from uh, from Newcastle and uh, a real Geordie. It was difficult for people who uh, 
had to take all this in for the first time. But, you know, it was it was interesting. Met a lot of interesting people. Did you find yourself gravitating towards fellow Northerners? No, not at all. In fact, most of my friends are Southerners. I didn't have any sort of Northern chip on my shoulder. I mean, people mentioned it all the time because that's just what Southerners do, and it's mainly Southerners, really. <laughs> yeah, I agree, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's never stopped. I mean, some of the friends I've had from Cambridge, I still see them, and they're still going about my accent. You know, it's not as if I've got an extremely strong accent, <laughs> but they're still going about the way I pronounce the word boat. Yeah. Or what have you, no. And it still gets on my nerves, but, you know, you put up with it. <laughs> yeah, I do enjoy the the north-south banter. I've got a few southern friends, and it, it doesn't go five minutes without them doing a, a very poor attempt, if I do say so myself, at the typical common Yorkshire accent, you know, the, of the coal mining days, as if as if we still sound like that, which is oh, just, yeah. just ridiculous. <laughs> Never stops. I remember also, it wasn't just the students. I remember... Um, you know, some of the lecturers as well, you know, you, you're the one from Yorkshire, aren't you? you know, as, if, <laughs> as if, you know, you were from Timbuktu or from some yeah. South Asian island or something, South Pacific island. You're the one from Yorkshire. Because literally most people were from private and public schools in the South, really. Yeah. How long did you study the course? English literature, was it? English literature, three years, yeah. And then I left and didn't have an idea what I wanted to do. Not a single idea. <laughs> So did you, did you not have an exit strategy at all with you? No, I didn't. Well, it was it was funny, really, because in the second year, at the end of the second year of three, you tend to start thinking about careers and go to these, these careers fairs and you gather information from companies who are recruiting and I had a big pile of it. And a friend of mine also had a big pile of it. And then one day we got drunk and climbed onto the roof of the accommodation block and burnt it all. God. And I, thinking of, thinking back on it now, I'm I'm, su- I'm surprised we didn't get into trouble, but we didn't. So I I, uh, I I didn't have an exit strategy, and neither did he. He went off to France and bummed about for a year, then became a lawyer. So I guess he got his strategy back soon enough. And it says you ended up going from Cambridge up to Hull, of all places. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit of another culture shock. Yeah, I didn't go straight there. I uh, I went to live in Spain. My girlfriend, my wife, now my girlfriend at the time is Spanish. So I went to live in Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain for, um, how long was I there? Three years. And I was, li- I was living in a flat with her and four other women, four other girls. They didn't want their parents to know that there was a boy living in the flat. So I wasn't allowed to answer the phone. <laughs> and sometimes, I, you know, if Susanna and the rest of them all went home to see their parents at the weekend, I'd be there on my own. And if the phone rang, I just had to sit there and listen to it ring. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I was there for, for three years. And in the final year, I, I got a sort of ten- temporary job at the university, which sparked my interest in uh, linguistics. Uh, so I then went to Hull and did a, a master's, then a PhD in applied linguistics. So yeah, I was in Hull for well, I'm the only person that's moved to Hull twice, I think, in the world. So <laughs> I moved there and, and did research. Then uh, I left for a year, and then I got a job in York, but, but I decided to, to live in Hull. So I, I've moved to Hull twice, and I, I really do love Hull. Great city. I've not been often. I always remember it as kind of a very, coming from such a hilly area like the Pennines, I, I remember it being such a flat like yeah. vast open area hole <laughs> where you can sort of see one side to the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a big fan of walking, so flat's good for me, you know. So. Right. So did you meet your wife at university then? Is that where you first uh, sort of met? That's right. met her at university and uh, she was traveling. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, fell in love with Spain and uh, I've lived here on and off 
since then, but I've lived here permanently since 2004. So Nice. Yeah, I did wonder what the, the Spanish connection was when I was checking out your, your biography. I thought, hmm, there must be something <laughs> there, and it turns out there was. <laughs> so there norm, the normally is. These stories are, normally involve romance. Yeah. So at what point then? So you've done your Cambridge degree. You've done your, your postgraduate stuff, your master's and stuff. At what point did you think, right, I know what I want to be. I want to be a writer. I suppose I've dabbled. When, when I was um, in my teens, I used to write poetry and um, I dabbled with fiction throughout my 20s without really ever getting anywhere. But I guess I always wanted to to be a writer, but for some reason it never really uh, materialised until I was at Hull. And um, I was there initially for four years. And in that time, I wrote two and a half novels. I wrote, I wrote two complete novels. And then I was halfway through this, the third one when I'd finished my research. And um, I had this stupid plan, which was I sent the first one off to six literary agents and didn't get any interest. And then I wrote another novel and um, sent it to five literary agents. The plan was the next one I would send to four and the next one to three <laughs> down to one. And it's, it's, it, was, it was stupid, really. But um, I had three goes at writing uh, those novels, and none of them, none of them were published. And then, uh, right at the end, the last few months, we moved into a flat just as I was finishing writing my thesis, just before we left for Spain. We moved into a new flat, and um, my head was just so full of statistics and writing up, and it was quite a technical thesis. I was so tired, and at night, I, I would lay in bed and I was looking at. Um, the wardrobe opposite the bed and wondering whether I could eat it, whether I could literally eat an entire wardrobe by grinding it up into sawdust and swallowing it. Wow. So then I wrote a story about that, about a man who can eat anything. And I, um, I sent it to an American magazine, New York magazine called the Paris Review, which is you know quite a big thing over there. And I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't read it or anything. A friend suggested sending it. So I did, and it got published and that led to my first book deal. So it was all because of this wardrobe I was looking at every night, wondering whether I could eat it. And that's, that's how it all started. So what you did was you wrote an autobiography yeah. about, about a man that can eat wardrobes. Yeah, That's, that's a quite a cool little story, though, that. Because I, I wondered, because it said you had a lot of links to sort of journalism in America, like the Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer and stuff. So I did wonder how you had a link to America. I just sent him it on spec and um, it was published and it won the Discovery Prize, which is essentially their newcomer's prize of the year. So within, you know, within a, a, about a year of trying to think what eating a piece of furniture would be like, I was actually driving down Manhattan on an evening, a Friday evening, to go to my own reading in, um, in a Manhattan literary theatre event so it was, it, was, it was all quite surreal and happened quite fast. It's quite a good little progression, isn't it, from sending it to something that is an unknown entity for yourself? Yeah, it was just, I, I was really embarrassed in the sense because, you know, most people have, would have heard of the Parish of but I was just so ignorant. But um, it was run by a man called um, George Plimpton, who had been a friend of all the great writers, Truman Capote and, um, and Hemingway and... Uh, so I went to his house a couple of times and had meals with him, and he was a, he was a big fan. He was really supportive. So I got American, I got an American agent at that point, and sort of 
for the next three books, I sort of was America-based, although I wasn't living there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So those first three, you said it was three books you you tried to send off that didn't get picked up. Yeah. So have they remained unpublished then, or did you later try and get those published? Well, it's funny you should say that. I I discovered the other day that the first one I've lost. Um, Mm. (laughs) I, I did have it on floppy. You remember the old floppy disks? Oh, yeah. I had it on a floppy disk, and I had it on a diskette, and uh, but some, for some reason it's disappeared. But I've got the other two. But no, I just haven't done anything with them. I I, um, I read I read through a little bit of one of them recently, and it's not very good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So it says that you've also done some ghost writing. Yeah, I've done a few things. I've I've helped people with um, a couple of romances, but the the, the big project I did was for a Swedish art duo called um, uh, Golden and Senebi, the two contemporary artists from Sweden. And um, they wanted me to write a book about the search for a mysterious offshore company called Headless. Mm-hmm. And it, would be, it, was, it was like a performative novel in the sense that the story was about somebody called John Barlow, who was a, a, a writer living in Spain trying to find this mysterious company. So um, it was, I was sort of fictionalizing my own life or I was fictionalizing a version of my own life. And then, you know, they'd send me off to Hawaii for 10, to um, the Bahamas for 10 days, or I, 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 I was in Milan at one point and it was Norway. I was in London, Paris. And so I, I'd, I'd go around pretending to be this fictitious John Barlow sometimes actually appearing in uh, art galleries and exhibitions talking about this project. And I was also writing it, although my name isn't on the book because it's supposed to be fictitious. And it, it was crazy. It went on for about seven years and it involved all sorts of stuff. At one point, we were using a private detective to follow somebody. We're, we're in loads and loads of galleries around the world. And um, I remember, you know, they asked me, can you write something for this? The, the Metro newspaper in Brazil and stuff like that was just, it just went on and on for seven years. Um, and eventually we it came to an end and the book was published as a, a thriller. And it's called Headless, but it doesn't have my name on it because I'm in it, but I did actually write it. Do you find that's frustrating in regards as you're not getting the acknowledgement that you perhaps deserve? Or is that just part of the deal when you sign up to ghostwrite something? No, it's, it's fine. That's the way it was always going to be, and um, you know, I got paid for it, so um, I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm happy with it. But it was a very it was a very strange project because um, trying to make a thriller out of something in which you are actually living yourself is is crazy because some of it has to be fiction. I mean, nobody died in the making of that story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was it was kind of good fun and. Um, and it involved uh, some some French philosophy as well, which they kept trying to get me to read, but I never really did because I'm lazy, you know. <laughs> but it, it was to do I – did, I did read some, actually. Yeah. But I uh, didn't really understand much of it. But it was to do with Georges Bataille, who was um, 
reputedly involved in a human uh, sacrifice in the 1930s, 1920s, um, and whether that really happened or not. And, um, well, it was crazy. It was crazy. And uh, that went on for seven years. So wow. there you go. <laughs> How difficult was it to, I guess, wake up and remember which one you were? Do you know what I mean? If, if you're playing this character almost for seven years in public, did you ever disassociate mentally? It was it was normally okay when I was at home, but for, when I was in the the Bahamas, for example, the the company I was supposed to be looking for really did exist. So I went and found it in the records office, and then I started sniffing around. So at one point, not really knowing where I was, I walked into the presidential offices in Nassau by mistake and was chased out by a security guard. And and I was asking around, and I was I was meeting people. I got invited to the 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 foreign office to a, I was introduced at a drinks party and I got to know bankers and I got to know all sorts of people. And um, at this stage, I wasn't quite sure what this company was, whether it was dangerous or not, but it was called Headless, the company. And it did exist. And I remember just at one point I was in a cafe having lunch and I, th- I thought somebody was following me. I thought somebody had followed me in and I got a bit scared at that point because I didn't really know what was going on. But in fact, nobody was following me, I don't think, you know. <laughs> It's becoming paranoid. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit like that because I was sniffing around for ten solid days, and um, you're sort of in a bubble because you're on your own. You're not talking to anybody, and mm. you're thinking, "Is this just completely stupid?" I, I, what I had to do was I had a rucksack with me with a copy of one of my books in it, because if somebody had stopped me, the police or security forces, why would I have said I was there? For ten yeah. days, you know. So I, I had a, a book which had a picture of me on it, just to say, you know, I'm, I'm a novelist. I'm doing some research, but I, you know, I didn't get into trouble at all. Bit of a bizarre question, this, but I imagine movie stars, for example, a lot of them will watch their own movies. They won't watch their own movies. Now that's ninety minutes, hundred and twenty minutes. Obviously, it takes less that time than it does to read a book. When your books are published, bearing in mind you've already written the thing and you've gone through the editing process and you probably know it like the back of your hand, front and back. Have you ever just sat down and read one of your own books when it's physical in your hand, like paperback, hardback? No, I haven't. No, not all the way through. I don't know. I, I, may, I may have read a little bit of one now and again, but no, I, I, I don't tend to even open it when they send them. You know, I make sure the first few pages look all right, then I put it away. No, I, ne- I never do. Unless you're trying to adapt something for, for screen or something. Yeah. What about if you're writing, for example, one of your crime series and you need to, do you ever use it as a reference point if you forget something or if you want to refer to something that was in a previous book? Yeah, yeah. So then you, you, you try and have things fresh in your mind. But yeah, I've gone back to uh, the first Joe Romano book quite a lot just to get details right. Yeah, so there's, um, it's a lot easier now because it's on your computer. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when people used to write things in manuscript. Uh, and then it would have been far more difficult to find out his shoe size or his, yeah. you know, his, his mother's name or whatever. How much goes into forming the characters within a novel? Because you start and you've got a completely blank Word document, whatever document you use on the computer. Everything that you create comes from your mind. What? So let's say, do you start with the protagonist? And if so, what's the first thing you try to get down on paper would it be his personality his his appearance well it's uh not his appearance it's more his personality what i tended to do and what i did with joe as i just um i wrote the first book actually in a bar on my laptop so it's men there the first draft was men that are written in a bar with a couple of beers 
you know, in the evenings. Hmm. And I'd play about with a, a, a scene or a couple of scenes and just see how he how he reacted. And most of that stuff's rubbish, you know, and you come away with it just having a slightly better idea of what kind of character you want, what kind of shape he's got to be in psychologically and what kind of backstory you might have to explain that. So it kind of evolves over time. Normally it evolves over time, but sometimes character just jumps out and that's kind of a different thing. That's a bit more like magic, I think. Mm. It could be one of the two things, I guess. So can we do, before we go on to your, your first sort of published work, Eating Mammals, that did really well and won the prize there in 2002, it said on the website that you have done some work as a translator as well. Yeah, I translate normally academic things. So I work for universities and I translate all manner of things, but generally it's academic things because of the background I have in research. But all sorts of things, yeah, linguistics, mathematics, history, anything. I don't do any literary translation. My Spanish isn't sophisticated enough for that. Right, but you're translating basically from, from English to Spanish or vice versa? Vice, yeah, from, from Spanish to English, yeah. Right. That's, oh. that's what I do, yeah. How long did it take you to learn the level of Spanish that you do? No. Well, I, I just learned it because I, I came to live here. I never studied it, really. Okay. I guess there are probably translators who know a lot more Spanish than me. My Spanish is pretty good, but it's not perfect. But you know, you've got your help. You've got the help of dictionaries. You're not doing it in real time. You can correct things. You can ask people for their advice. I think casting my mind back when I first came here, I think at the end of three years, I was pretty fluent. I picked it up pretty much by then. Yeah. When you are learning a language such as that, it helps, of course, that everyone around you speaks it fluently. Yeah. What I found difficult, and not Spanish, I studied German in high school. What I found difficult was the grammar and the sentence structure. Mm. I've also seen, I don't know if you watch the, the YouTuber called uh, Bald and Bankrupt, but he speaks fluent Russian. Mm-hmm. And his advice to anyone learning a language is, don't learn sentence structure and grammar. Just learn essentially word-for-word exchanges. Is that yeah. a similar thing with how you learnt it? So if you want to say what time is it you would just learn the word for each of those or would you learn it in specific phrases i think you can do that i don't think it works at a high level i think if you want to learn how to chat hang around in bars and chat and eventually you'll chat better mm. i think that's that's fair enough but there comes a point certainly for spanish it's the only foreign language i you know can really speak half a tiny bit of french and there comes a point where you've got to refer back to the grammar just to clarify whether something's right or wrong so with me, because I'd done some work in linguistics, I was able to rely on a bit of uh, grammar as well and sort of sniff out what was right and wrong. I'm not sure you can do that right the way up to fluency mm. if you're not using grammar to some extent. I mean, I'm just not sure how it would work, but you can certainly get to a good chatting level without recourse to grammar, I think, yeah. Do you think apps such as... I forget what the little apps are called that you can learn. Yeah, the learning apps. Duolingo, I think one of them's called. Do you think they're as good as they're cracked up to be? Or do you think it's better to sort of throw yourself in the deep end? If you do truly want to learn something, to speak to people that are fluent in the language. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I've tried with French, trying to brush up my French, but they're just so boring. They're just not real life, are they? It's far better, I think, just to find somebody who speaks the language, even if it's only for a quarter of an hour or whatever, half an hour. I know my sons have both had, had a go on Duolingo and neither of them found it interesting enough to carry on. But yeah, I mean, it's something. I mean, it's, it's a way of helping. 
suppose it's an introduction, isn't it, really, more than anything? I yeah, guess. I remember I, I pride myself on being able to get by in a little bit of French, a tiny bit of French. And so I went on Duolingo and I did their initiation test and I thought I was doing really well and I thought I was getting quite a lot of these right. And at the end it said, we have now placed you. Your placement is beginner. <laughs> <laughs> so I think at that point I, I gave up on the Duolingo. But we're going to France this summer, so I'll, I'll, I'll just corner somebody and brush up by yeah. talking to them. I'm sure you'll pick it up quick enough. So let's talk about eating mammals then. Mm. My understanding is that this is three novellas in one collection. Is that right? That's right, yeah. What's the the theme of, of this book? Well, they're all sort of slightly magic realist. They're all set in in or around Gummersel or Cleckheaton, where I grew up. And they're all they're all historical. Eating Mammals is set in the early 20th century, the other two in the 19th century. But yeah, I didn't have any I didn't have an agent at the time telling me what to write. So I just I just I chose the least marketable form, which is the novella. <laughs> and I chose to set them in a place nobody had ever heard of in the past. So, you know, it, it couldn't have been a, a less ambitious kind of book in that sense. Um, but they're all slightly magic realist. And they're all, you know, they're all based on truth. They're all based on true stories. So the one about eating furniture is based on um, a French guy called Monsieur Monge Two. Oh, no, uh, yeah, his real name is Michael Lepito, I think, and he died a few years ago. But he he was famous for having eaten a, a Cessna biplane by grinding it up and ingesting a certain amount every day. And it took him two years. But he could eat anything. I mean, he ate a, an Apple Mac computer as a demonstration. So one was about uh, another guy like that. One was about a romance between two pork pie makers in Clackheaton, which um, it's a great rap line, isn't it? A great. Uh, I'm interested already. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one was about uh, something that happened in my family, which was um, my great-great-great-grandfather, or whoever it was, was a bit of a, a bit of a criminal. And at one point he got, um, he stole a cat with wings. It was one of these cats they take around to, uh, to fairgrounds and as a, a curiosity, you know. It would have yeah. been a cat, with, a cat with some kind of wings tied on or taped on or something tied on. Or it may have been a cat with deformity. There are cats with this kind of deformity, and they look like wings. Anyway, he, he stole this cat and got put in prison for it. So I wrote a story from the point of view of the cat about that, and that was more of the magic realist one. So that was the third novella in the collection. But yeah, it's, it seems like an awful long time ago, that now. When did you find out that it had won an award? Well, I was, in, I was in a hole at somebody's house having dinner one night. And um, Susanna, who was, who was in Spain at the time, she phoned up. It was about midnight, but she'd seen an email that I got. I would have been set. I don't know why she saw it. But, oh, they may have phoned her up. I don't know. Anyway, she rang up and um, I said it was about midnight our time. And I said, you know, you won the Parish Review Discovery Prize. So we spent most of the rest of the night drinking brandy. To celebrate, I'd, I'd forgotten that I had a, a linguistics lecture first thing the next morning. <laughs> so by the time I dragged myself into work, I was, I was still drunk, and I was, I was sort of doing a dance in the staff room, and then they kind of sobered me up with coffee and sent me in there to, to talk about whatever it was for an hour. So <laughs> I don't think anybody noticed. <laughs> what was the ceremony like? Was there a ceremony? Well, it was no, it was um, it was a reading in a in a theatre in in Manhattan. Because right, I was so okay. naive, I was so naive because George Plimpton was a, a big figure in literary New York, 
and there were probably all sorts of editors and agents there. But I was too embarrassed to ask him to find me an agent or, you know, too embarrassed to, to really take any advantage of that um, situation. I'm not really a, a networker, you know. Hmm. But as it, as it turned out, I did get an agent in New York in the end and um, got a book deal. So it, it turned out quite well, although I wish I'd been a bit more pushy, you know. Well, you learn from experience, I suppose. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> but then I don't want to discuss next the, you've done a book, well, you've done a series with three books. This is the John Ray LS9 crime series. Yeah. LS9 is in the Leeds area code. That's is right, that? yes. Perfect. That's right, yes. I thought so. So this, for anyone that's not from Leeds or that is from Leeds, this is sort of, well, according to Wikipedia, even though I live here, my knowledge of each area code isn't great, but we're talking Bermontoffs, Hare Hills, Gipton, East End Park. These are all areas in LS9. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What made you want to write about such an area within Leeds? Well, my, fam- my family are all from Leeds, and um, my dad worked most of his life in Leeds, and he was an electrical engineer, so he'd inspected or worked on most of the public buildings and a lot of private buildings as well, whilst he was at the YUB. So, so he had this encyclopedic knowledge of Leeds buildings. And so he was a good resource. So um, we were just driving around looking for places just to, to see where we might set a crime novel. And we, we, we turned down, he said, just go down here. This has got some old dodgy buildings in it. So we turned down a street. And it's not a modern part of the city. It's an old part of the city with some old Victorian warehouses and things there and I thought this looks good this was like a good setting and we parked up and the road was called Hope Road mm. which I thought was a brilliant name for the book so I said right that's the title then I've just got to write it now and uh, I did we just, we just I just wrote it based on that name really. What area was it that you were in? That was down just oh god I forgot what it's called just down at the bottom of the hedgerow yeah there's a roundabout and just just off that going northwards just there and there's a sort of small area of industrial buildings from the 19th century which are gradually being torn down i can't remember what district it's in to tell you the truth i'm just looking is it little london or woodhouse it's not as far as woodhouse it's further in further in oh, i don't know it's quite close into the city and i remember i remember thinking this is great because you can see the, the new city the modern city of leeds yeah it's, it's really close milgarth at the time was there the police station was within half a half a mile of that street at the time, perhaps a bit less. Uh, the bus station was there. So there was all of Leeds there, but this was kind of the seedy part of Leeds. So it served my purpose as well. And so that's why I chose it, really. Yeah, it, it's like a building site, Leeds, these days. It's just yeah, so yeah. progressive. There's cranes everywhere, roadworks all the time. It's a nightmare to live in, but it's a great city. <laughs> <laughs> Because then you moved on to the DS Joe Romano series, and I'm yeah. currently reading the first one, which is Right to Kill, mm-hmm. and that came out last year, I believe, sometime. Yeah, yeah. about the time last year, yeah. And this one's based more Wortley Way. That's right. Well, that's where my, my grandparents and my parents lived. So they lived on that side of Leeds. Mm. So again, I based it... Well, it wasn't based in, in Wortley, but uh, the, the character, Joe Romano, his family were based there. So it's... Uh, Again, I'm sort of drawing on my dad's family past, and most of the locations are, again, real. It's good to read about, especially because, I mean, I work from home now, but used to work in the centre. So when you talk about places like the Head Row and the police station at Ellen Road and the football stadium, all this kind of stuff, it's it's good to read about, especially when you live in a city. Yeah. So book two within that series called To the Grave, that was released on May 26th. Mm-hmm. 
what can my listeners expect from the second book in the DS Romano series? Well, it's a bit different. It's about a young woman this time. This is one of those stories which you start off with a, a conundrum or a question which can't be answered immediately. So the, the question is that there's a, a young woman who knows that she's going to be murdered, uh, but she can't go to the police. So the, the premise of the book is really about why she can't and what happens when Joe gets involved and starts to become worried about her. And again, it's set, it's set in Leeds, but it's also set in some of the mill towns around Leeds. So we've, we've got quite a big contrast between those towns and the part of Leeds which I use, which is the, the richer part of Leeds, up towards the golf clubs in the north of Leeds. Mm-hmm. So we've got a contrast of um, very rich characters and very poor characters. It's good to hear about your background because I can piece it together now because we've got the the big city life of Leeds proper, if you were, and then in Right to Kill, I'm reading, you've got the one of the characters sort of drives around places like Cleckheaton, like Batley, Burstall, all these sort of offshoot small towns just off of Leeds. Mm -hmm. And driving from the big city into there, it's just desolate in comparison. So it's good to hear about where that origin has come from with your family and where you've grown up, etc. Yeah, I mean, Leeds was always like the, the big city for us, you know. It's um, it about 10 miles away and it was the place we'd go for, you know, for the big for the big Saturday uh, out, you know, and then back back home. So, yeah, Leeds has always had that. We're actually slightly close to Bradford, but we've always been a Leeds family, you know. Everybody mm. has to choose one. Yeah. <laughs> have to have their, their big city to go to and ours is Leeds. Yeah, I don't blame you. What's your favourite thing to write about? Because you've written in a, a variety of styles, non-fiction, fiction. What's your favourite thing to write about? Well, I quite like writing about food. So I did a book about Spain, a non-fiction book about the part of Spain where I live, and particularly about food and culinary culture. And that led to quite a lot of work for food magazines and uh, commissions of one sort or another. So I, I've done quite a lot of writing about food, and I really enjoy that. So I used to work for a, a magazine which would send me, say they send me across Spain. I'd, I'd fly to the other side of Spain and try and trot out 3,000 words about Spanish apples. You know, staying in a hotel and just asking people, do you know anything about apples? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, going to visit apple growers and things, or, or, or garlic or ham or whatever, and um, seafood, I'd done all that kind of stuff. And um, that's that's a lot of fun, you know, because when you meet people who produce food, for a living, that's what they're mainly interested in. So you're, you're talking to experts about something that you like, but of which you're not an expert. So it's it's a good experience. I really enjoyed that. And I continue to do a bit now. What's your writing process? Is it something where do you have routines, superstitions? Do you have to be in a certain place? Do you have to be alone? No, I, mean, I, I tend to keep fairly much office hours. So, you know, I'll, I'll, always, I'll always start work half past eight, nine, something like that, uh, whatever I'm doing. In fact, I started a bit earlier today. And I'll always do that. And um, when I'm writing fiction, I tend to rewrite yesterday's draft. And then when I've done that after an hour or two, then I'll start writing today's new stuff. So, so that's, mm. that's generally how I've gone about it. But with Right to Kill, like I said, I, I sort of wrote that for myself, really. I wasn't really intending to publish it, at least in, not initially. And I wrote that in a bar in the evenings. I was, I was busy doing other things. And uh, that was actually written almost entirely with a, a glass of beer to my right, often an empty glass. <laughs> it's nice to hear that 
based on what you've just said there, writing to you isn't just a career. It is a passion. It is something that you love doing because to write a book, I mean, I've not finished Right to Kill yet, but what I've read so far, I'm really enjoying it. To read a book of such quality with an empty pint in your hand most of the time that you didn't (laughs) intend to be published, that's quite an achievement, I think. Yeah, well, I I think by the time it got to writing that, I I wasn't really sure whether I was going to try and publish anything else. But, you know, you can't really stop writing if you, if you enjoy it. So, yeah, it's, it's a hobby. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I've been fiddling about on things today, you know, things I've written before and uh, things I might be trying to turn into a screenplay and what have you. You're always fiddling around with something, I think. Yeah. Have you got any advice you would give to aspiring authors? So maybe someone who is in the middle of their first novel or has perhaps just finished it and wondering what to do next what advice would you give maybe something that you wish you'd have known at the start um i i always was quite disciplined i think and one thing i learned quite quickly but which is very useful advice i think is that you know you 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 can build a story one brick at a time like wall you can just if you've only got half an hour just do half an hour's work you know you don't have to obsess about getting to the end of a chapter or, or a scene or to the end of the book you know just do what what you've got time to do and, and try and try and build it up from there I mean if, if, if a novel is 80,000 80, words you just divide it into the amount of time you've got and that's how long, how long it's going to take you you know if it's 500 words a day it's 160 days yeah and just just make sure you do it every day yeah I think that's crucial with anything you want to perfect or become a master of is practice Mm. you can only practice by doing doing yeah just keep on doing that i I think also if you can if you can be a good critic of your own work as well and um, try and see where you're going wrong i mean it's not always easy but um and taking advice uh, taking advice again isn't always easy because you you know you're kind of protective about what you've written yourself but um, well i mean one of the nice things about having a a publisher is you're an editor and if you're lucky to have a brilliant editor at HarperCollins. And, uh, you know, the, I work with my agent before the book goes to HarperCollins and both of those people really help the manuscript get better. So, you know, listen to other people if you can and respond to what they say. And it's just do anything you can to make it better. Just try and look at any angle you can to make it better. Never be satisfied. Good advice. I like that. Never be satisfied. Mm. Really good. I remember when, when um, the last thing I asked to be changed in, Right to Kill, were a couple of changes that arrived. My email arrived about half an hour before it was actually being sent to the typesetter. So we are still, still fiddling about with commas right at the end. <laughs> and then I had to be told to stop. <laughs> well, I think it's one of them things you can sometimes over-edit and over-analyze things. Yeah, you need to be told to stop at some point. Yeah, I completely agree. So, I mean, before we close out, John, what do you do to relax then other than writing? Do you have any other hobbies? No, really. I read a lot. I like food. So I, I would say uh, one of my hobbies is cooking. I like cooking a lot. And uh, we like travel a lot. So the last couple of years have been difficult for us because we, you know, we, we normally travel quite a lot. So we'll be getting back into that this year. Uh, certainly France, certainly Britain, perhaps somewhere a bit further off. We don't know. But um, travel, I would say, is one of the things. And my other big hobby is music. So I the moment I play in a, an Elvis tribute rock band, so I play the piano. So, mm-hmm. um, and I also play, you know, jazz piano for myself. And uh, so that's that's my other hobby. 
Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, John. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's been great. Good stuff. A reminder for my listeners out there that John's latest book, To the Grave, that's the second in the Joe Romano series based in Leeds. Go on, Leeds. Published by HQ HarperCollins. It's available to purchase now. I will put a link in the description if you're interested in buying it. Where can everyone find you? They can find me at johnbarlow.net. They can find me on Twitter, John Barlow, I think I'm called. Mm -hmm. John Barlow LS9, I think I'm called on Twitter. Oh, okay. Are you active on social media? I'm doing quite quite a bit of tweeting, yes. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, if people want to reach out to John, uh, send him a tweet and (laughs) he'll respond to you. Yeah, before we close out, any final thoughts, any final words you'd like to say before we close out, John? I'm just, you know, I was just talking about Leeds and focusing on Leeds. I'm just um, working on a screenplay of, of something set in Leeds. And um, I don't think there can be a, a more perfect city to for drama and fiction in general. It's just such a great mixture in Leeds. You know, you've got a lot of, a lot of contrasts, haven't you? A lot of rich people, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of poverty as well on the outskirts in various pockets. It's just the right size. You know, a, a, a copper once told me, a detective I was interviewing once told me, oh, it's a great city for crime. You know, he said, his eyes really lit up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the right size, big enough to be dangerous and cosmopolitan. So, yeah, yeah, I think I'll be writing more about Leeds. I might have to rename this episode the Leeds Tribute episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. For everyone else, I'll be back next time with another episode. But for now, as we always say on British Murders, cheerio. 